Hey everyone, this is Cabane the Christian. Welcome to another installment of Bible Bits. Today we're going to be talking about symbolic numbers, sometimes referred to as gematria, though as we'll see, gematria refers to a subset of the symbolic use of numbers in the scriptures. Because this is a Bible Bits installment rather than, say, a full-length exploration of the subject, I'm going to try to keep it brief, but we'll see if I succeed in doing that. Uh, as I've said before, uh, below I do have a link to my Patreon. I've been really encouraged and moved at how many people have chosen to become premium subscribers. As I've said, uh, it does. I, I do feel awkward asking for money. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it really is essential in terms of the long-term viability of this project that I be able to produce some income off of these videos. So if you're financially able, uh, I would really appreciate becoming a premium subscriber, and that does come with certain benefits, such as I guarantee to make a video addressing uh, uh, your question, whether in a group video or individually, if I deem the question worthy, worthy uh, once a month, uh, or doing it in a live Q&A session. Uh, number two, you get full-length interviews with selected people, scholars, and otherwise. The first interview is coming this week. And number three, as we'll discuss further, in the future you will get full-length recording to um, any future debates that I do. And some of those are in the early stages of planning. So um, I really hope that you will enjoy that. Uh, please do pray for me going forward. And with that said, let's get started. So the first thing to say about symbolic numbers is that this is a fairly controversial subject. Uh, some Christians today are very, I don't know how else to put it, spooked by the suggestion that numbers are used symbolically in the Bible. Some people think it's associated with the occult. Some people uh, are kind of put off by the so-called Bible code that was popular in the late 90s. But what I want to suggest to you here is that symbolic numbers are an integral part of a holistic hermeneutic. They have been affirmed uh, consistently by both Jewish and Christian hermeneutical traditions. They certainly go back to the apostolic age, and in fact, I would suggest they go back to the very earliest days of scripture itself. And it's a very widely known and used device uh, for traditional modes of writing in order to layer additional layers of meaning into a text that you're producing. So traditionally, writing something, being a scribe or an author, is not something just anybody could do. It was expensive to produce and copy these texts, and it really required professional discipline in order to produce something which other people would want to copy and read. And because paper was limited, far more limited than it is today, where we can just use it whenever we want. In fact, we don't even need paper anymore because writing material was so limited uh, and the size of the scroll had hard limits. This is one reason why an author would want additional modes to layer additional kinds of meaning into the text that he produces. But the essential point here is that everybody actually grants the existence of symbolic numbers in principle. It's just that the symbolic numbers which are most well known are so well known that we've forgotten they're symbolic. It's kind of like the phrase, be fruitful and multiply. When we think about the nature of that phrase, it's actually an allegory where there is an analogy being drawn between human beings and plants. Human beings don't literally have fruit. Human beings don't literally have seed. But there's an analogy drawn in the way that human reproduction is described that allows us to see human and plant life in light of each other and thus understand both more precisely. 
The two most obvious and well-known symbolic numbers are the numbers 7 and 12. 7 because of its use in the Sabbath, and 12 because of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 has many other dimensions of meaning, but the well-known one um, pertains to its uh, being the number of the 12 tribes of Israel. So everybody affirms that there are such things as symbolic numbers. And when people see sevens and twelves throughout the scriptures, uh, they're at least open in general to the idea that there might be some kind of reference back to the Sabbath or some kind of reference back to the nation of Israel as a nation constituted out of 12 tribes, even if the person is otherwise very, very skeptical of the use of symbolic numbers in general. Now, there's a complex philosophy which makes intelligible the use of numbers as symbols, but because this is a Bible Bits video, we won't be getting to that right now, but I do want to say we will be getting into that in another video. Uh, here's a text which I think is very, very important. This is from Mark uh, chapter 8, and I have it up on the screen for you. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, he's talking to his disciples, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? This is an echo of Isaiah chapter 6. And the key thing to notice here is that Jesus believes that the disciples should have already understood uh, the symbolic meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So according to Jesus and Jesus's interpretation of his ministry, it should be obvious that the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000 and the number of baskets that were left over had symbolic dimensions. And I think this is a very important point because if Jesus thinks that it's self-evident that uh, numbers like this have symbolic dimensions, then it reduces the burden of proof in establishing that any particular number has a symbolic dimension. Now, we don't have to know what that symbolic dimension is, but I think we should be very, very open to the idea that a wide variety of numbers have symbolic dimensions, remembering as well that there's a difference between an event happening historically and the biblical author deciding that the event is worthy of note in the literary text, which he is producing. So explaining why there's a particular number used in scripture cannot necessarily be sufficiently done by just saying, well, because that's how it happened. Because there's lots of stuff which has happened which isn't specifically taken note of in scripture. There are plenty of numbers which aren't specifically noted in scripture. The biblical author might just say many or a few, but there are cases, lots of cases, where we do have a specific number noted. And I think we should be very open to considering that uh, when the biblical author takes note of a particular number, that it has symbolic dimension. Now, personally, um, I think in every single case, there's some kind of symbolic dimension. I'm not going to make that uh, case here, but I think at the very least, we should be open to that possibility because Jesus regards it as so self-evident. So self-evident, in fact, that your heart would have to be supernaturally hardened for you to miss the point here. 
Here's an example which has been noted since antiquity, and there's been a fair amount of discussion about what exactly the point here is. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, this event uh, happening after the resurrection of Jesus is quite obviously an echo of an event which happened before the resurrection of Jesus, where there was a miraculous catch of fish with many of the same characters involved. Yet you will notice that in the, that previous event noted in the Synoptic Gospels, we are not told specifically how many fish were caught when they cast the net over the side of the boat after catching nothing for the night before. And so we see that there is a set of circumstances in which there's a very similar event but which the number is not noted. So we should at least ask the question, why are we told how many fish are caught in this event? And I think the answer comes from Ezekiel 47. I'm not going to read the whole passage here, but I do want to note that uh, the idea is that there is a new temple established in the Messianic age where the glory of God suffuses this temple and that divine presence renews the creation in, and that's signified by a river going out from the Holy of Holies. On either side of the river, you have a tree which bears, you have trees which bear their fruit in season. It's a quotation, by the way, of Psalm 1. It's kind of an example of what I was just saying about being fruitful and multiplying and human beings having seed. The trees which are mentioned here are, among other things, symbols of righteous people who bear their fruit in season because they meditate day and night on the Torah. And we're told here that. Uh, the river which goes out gives life to fish in the Dead Sea. Now, why the Dead Sea? Because the Dead Sea is actually created in the judgment of the five cities of the plain, the two most well-known of which are Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we have the idea here being that the uh, sinful condition which undergirds the civilizational catastrophe leading to cataclysmic destruction by God in Sodom and Gomorrah, that underlying problem is healed. Fish refer, among other things in scripture, to the nations because Israel is symbolized by the land, the nations are symbolized by the sea. You can see that in many places. The four kingdoms, the Gentile kingdoms in the book of Daniel are signified by beasts that are coming up out of the sea. In the book of Jonah, Jonah goes to preach to the Assyrians by traveling in a fish uh, through the sea, even though he could actually get there by land. There are many other texts which we could look at if we had the time to show that in the Bible, the sea, among other things, refers to the nations. So giving life to the fish here refers, among other things, to that healing of the nations, which is promised throughout the scriptures in the Messianic age by the means of the divine presence. Now, in the Hebrew language, and in fact, in most languages, uh, each letter has a numerical value, and there are different ways of counting that numerical value. But the basic way of counting uh, leads to Engedi being 17, and Aglaim being 153, and Fish being 17. Now, 153 is actually a triangular of the number 17. And what that means is that if you take all of the numbers which add up to um, how do I put this? If you take 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 all the way up to the number 17, what you're going to get is 153. So there's already a mathematical relation between the numbers 153 and the number 17. And 
the theme here of the conversion and healing of the Gentile nations of the world by the divine presence coincides with the theme of John 21. Because what was the event of catching the fish miraculously in the synoptic tradition all out? It was about becoming fishers of men, going out and converting the nations of the world. At the end of each of the four Gospels, you have a Great Commission event. Well, in the Gospel of John, you do have an explicit commissioning in John chapter 20, and now in John chapter 21, you have that signified in the catching of fish, and there are seven disciples whose presence is noted here, and I didn't go into it, but in Mark 7, the significance of the number seven in feeding of the 4,000 is the fact that it is related to the Gentile world. The 4,000 who are fed are Gentiles. They're in Gentile territory, and thus you have seven baskets left over, corresponding to the 70 nations of the world. And then in the 5,000, these are Israelites, these are Jews, so you have 12 baskets left over, corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the feeding of fish and bread to both Jew and Gentile signifies the feeding of Jew and Gentile to each other, uh, thus constituting them as one body, and that anticipates the Eucharistic significance that the feedings of the 4,000 and the 5,000 come to have. Remember, you are what you eat, so if you go to a feast and you, two people eat the same thing, after a fashion, they are eating each other. They are becoming one with each other. That sounds strange, but when you understand the inner logic of the particular concepts, it makes a great deal of sense. And so you have the, uh, the theology uh, corresponding to this particular reading of the significance of these numbers. But why is it particularly plausible that we have Ezekiel 47 here? Well, I think the most straightforward reason for that, other than everything that I've said, is looking at the parallel structures of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Now, both of these are attributed to the Apostle John, and if you look at them from a literary point of view, not only do they have many of the same themes, not only do they have many of the same key phrases, but they are structured in parallel. That is, if you put them side by side, you can map out uh, a set of very specific correspondences uh, so that we can interpret them in light of one another. Um, that, that, that's been established really in some detail, and I don't think there's any question that they are written by the same uh, individual. But at the end of the book of Revelation, in the literary slot that corresponds to this narrative in the Gospel of John, we have the city of God, which comes down from heaven, and Ezekiel 47, the temple, is called a city. It is a temple city, a city, a human community, which is suffused by the divine glory, by the presence of God. We have the city of God, which comes down from heaven, which is the new Jerusalem, which is an image for the renewed creation. Isaiah 65, God says, I will create a city, and then he says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. It's because a city is a microcosm. A city is a human polis, a human community, which sums up the qualities which are distributed throughout the entire creation. And so the renewed creation is described as a temple city, a city filled with the glory of God, where the human relations in that city are defined by the glory which flows between them. And in Revelation 21, you have that river of life which flows through the center of the city. And if you look at the text, not only in terms of the imagery, but in terms of the specific phrases used, it's very clear that Revelation is alluding to this very passage in Ezekiel. 
Indeed, if you look at the whole book of Revelation, you can do the same sort of thing, where you map out the book of Revelation next to the book of Ezekiel, and it corresponds very nicely and very neatly. And so we can see how this three-way relationship helps to interpret not only the Gospel of John, not only the book of Revelation, but also the book of Ezekiel in light of the New Testament. So we have several independent threads here, which are rolling together to establish a series of connections. And the mutuality of these connections, the interrelationship of these connections, and the capacity of these connections to interpret the text taken as a whole helps to establish uh, the this particular understanding of symbolic numbers in John 21 as plausible. Now, there's no way to prove it deductively, mathematically. Um, you, you'll find it plausible or you won't find it plausible. But there's why I find it not only plausible, but um, very, very likely. And 1 Corinthians 8.6, this is a very cool example. Uh, this is not... Uh, 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 something that I came up with. Uh, this is something that I'm taking from Crispin Fletcher Lewis in his very interesting book, Jesus Monotheism, which is the first volume of what's supposed to ultimately be a series on uh, why Jesus believed that he was divine and what that meant in the mind of Jesus. So uh, keep an eye out for that. It's very cool. 1 Corinthians 8.6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. So as has been noted, and I think is, is widely known by New Testament scholars these days, uh, this is a echo of the Shema. So the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So if you look at the wording of the Shema in Greek and you compare it to the wording of this text here, we see how this text opens up and unfolds the wording of the Shema. So uh, for uh, Hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You have one, one God becomes the Father, and then the Lord who is one becomes the one Lord Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. So the very idea of the oneness of God is unfolded into a twofold communion. And if you look at Ephesians 4, uh, 1 and following, you'll find the Spirit found there as well. So the particular dynamic whereby unity and diversity interact is not just a later uh, higher order question, which is then asked of the New Testament. It's a question and a a relationship which was already being noted in the apostolic era. Another way to see this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We have a discussion by the Apostle Paul of the unity of the body of Christ and of the significance of the fact that there are a multiplicity of gifts from the Holy Spirit distributed across that body of Christ. And he says there are many gifts but one God, many gifts but one Lord, many gifts but one Spirit. And he uses a different word for gifts in each case. Point being here that the unity and unity of, of the body and the diversity of the gifts is specifically contextualized in light of the unity of God and yet the diversity of persons. Now, the significance here is that in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, this passage, which unfolds and splits the Shema open in light of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is made up of exactly 26 words, and it's divided equally between two sects of 13 words. So, one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, that's 13 words. One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him, that's 13 words. What's the significance here? 
Well, if you look at the numerical value of the tetragrammaton, uh, if you look at the numerical value using the standard method of counting, it is 26. And you look at the numerical value using the standard method of counting of the Hebrew word for one, echad, it is 13. So we have encoded, as it were, into this exegesis of the Shema, another way of layering in the interaction between unity and plenitude in God. So we have, in terms of the whole text, it encodes the tetragrammaton, the Lord, in all caps, into the passage. And then in each part of the text, in the twofoldness of the text, Paul encodes the, one, the word one. Um, it's, it's very cool to see that the way that this, uh, these concepts interact on multiple levels. You've got intertextuality, you've got numerical devices, you've got gematria. Um, this is just an example of the immense depth which we find in the Holy Scriptures. The proof, though, is in the pudding. I, 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 this is one of the things that I'll always say when people uh, press me on my particular hermeneutic. You know, as I got into biblical interpretation... These are not things that I took for granted from the beginning, or I didn't, not just parroting James Jordan or Peter Lightart or whomever. Uh, these are things that initially I was quite skeptical of, but I had them in the back of my head as potential tools for interpreting the Bible productively. But as I worked through the scripture in what I hope was a sufficient amount of detail and relative depth, I started to find that these concepts and these interpretive um, tools were very, very useful. They were producing new layers of depth, which I had not seen in scripture beforehand. And the way that these new layers of depth were actually established as warranted in my mind was by seeing, for example, one text in light of each of another. It's not just the fact that, oh, they share a common phrase, so there we go, there's a new layer of depth. No, it's if we see text A in light of text B, does that show us a concept which we can only see when we look at them in that relation. And then can we take that concept and use it to illumine other ambiguous texts? And then again and again and again and again, I found this to be the case. Or if we take the idea that a particular number is used symbolically in this way in this text, does it help make sense of the passage as a whole? Does it help show the theological unity of the book as a whole? Does it reinforce and underscore themes which we already knew by other exegetical means to be there? Again and again and again, that's the case. If you look at Deuteronomy 5, for example, I think it's chapter 5, it might be a different chapter, but there's a discussion in Deuteronomy where Moses is recounting the history of Israel up to his own lifetime, and he refers to the time that they spent in the wilderness. Now, if you know your biblical history, you know that Israel spent exactly 38 years wandering in the wilderness. The first year, they're approaching Sinai, and then the last year, they're departing Sinai. Um, so they spent 38 years in the wilderness. That's, by the way, the significance of the reference to the man who was uh, crippled for 38 years in the Gospel of John. But in this particular passage, we already know that 38 is a major, in fact, it's the central theme, numerically speaking. We see all kinds of ways in which the number 38 is woven into the very structure of the passage itself. So you have to make up your own mind. You have to use your own judgment. But if you're skeptical about these things, you don't have to believe me. Don't just take it on my authority, but keep these ideas in the back of your mind as you're reading the scriptures and see if they help make sense of the text as a whole. So now I want to talk about the kinds of numerical devices that we see in scripture, because there are different ways in which different numbers can be encoded, as it were, and I don't mean to draw a connection with the idea of the Bible code, which suggested that, you know, all sorts of 
particular historical details disconnected from the actual context and, and meaning of the passage in question were encoded uh, into the biblical text. Just put that out of your mind when I say code. But there are different ways in which the biblical authors can draw connections between numbers, their symbolic uh, uh, correspondence, and the text which they are producing. One of them, in fact, uh, the uh, one of the most well-known is the idea of gematria. So gematria is the idea that every letter in the Hebrew language, and Greek letters do have their own numerical values, but I've not looked into whether that actually can be shown as to be productively used in the New Testament. New Testament authors very often use Hebrew numerical values in terms of creating symbolic connections between their books and uh, concepts in Hebrew gematria. We'll talk about one or two of those as we go forward here. Um, gematria means every letter has a numerical value. You take uh, the numerical value of each letter in a word or a passage, and that is the gematria of the whole word or the whole passage. Now, there are different ways of calculating numerical values, and then there are multiple uh, often simultaneous modes of counting which are used. For example, if you take the reduced gematria of uh, the tetragrammaton, and again, I'm not going to get into exactly what that means here. You can look it up for yourself. It's 17. And very often, both the number 26, standard gematria, and the number 17, reduced gematria, uh, are used in the same text. Or you might even have a text which is made up of exactly 17 times 26 words, or 17 times 26 letters. So uh, this is also was not something that I took for granted, but it was just very, very useful as I looked at texts to see both standard counting, ordinal counting, another thing we won't get into, and reduced counting um, as uh, legitimate means of uh, numerical layering in the biblical text. We have word and letter counts in the text. So uh, there are different ways in which the significance of the number of words and numbers of, letter or of letters in the biblical text um, might be shown. It might be shown uh, in terms of the number of words in a book or uh, number of letters in a book or an individual passage, that might correspond to a multiple or a related number of the tetragrammaton. So 26 times something or prime 26 or the 26th prime number, that's 101 by the way, or the 17th prime number, that's 59. We're going to look at several examples of that uh, in, in the following. Um, but this is something which is present throughout the Torah, especially, and this is this has been known since antiquity. So when Moses is producing the Torah, Maximus says, remember, that the Bible is like a textual incarnation of the Logos or the Word of God. Well, Moses, he produces the text so that large sections or entire books or the Torah as a whole is made up of multiples or um prime values related to 17 or 26 of 17 and 26. And this is a way of weaving the presence of God, the name of God throughout the text. So the tabernacle, which is constructed in the Mosaic period, is the place where God makes his name to dwell. It's where his presence dwells in Israel. And the Torah is a textual tabernacle. God's presence is made to dwell textually in the Torah. And this is made known by the biblical authors by weaving these numbers throughout their texts. C.J. Labuschagne, there's a wonderful book called Numerical Secrets of the Bible, which I strongly recommend that you read. It has a whole chapter on 17 and 26, um, which is what introduced me to this way of seeing uh, a scripture.
Um, notice how the tabernacle is communicated to Israel. Moses goes up on the mountain where he meets God, he sees the form of the Lord, and then we have very precise measurements given for every part of the tabernacle. Point being, God doesn't leave anything to chance. Everything in the construction of the house for God's name is significant in one way or another, so he gives very precise instructions. Well, by the same token, the Torah and the whole Bible as a revelation of the name of God is similarly precise. This is why in traditional Jewish manuscript transmission, you count the number of words and letters in the biblical text. This is not just a way of making sure the text is transmitted accurately. This has exegetical connotations and exegetical significance. The Torah is a holy text, and in the holiness of God, you have a perfect um, self-awareness. God doesn't leave anything to his subconscious. He has no subconscious. He knows himself perfectly. And when he reveals himself, every aspect of that revelation is significant. Put another way, um, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. So this is one way to show that the Torah or the whole Bible is a dwelling place for God. Uh, number of times a word is used in the whole book. So you have a key word, uh, the fancy word for a key word in a text or the book is a light word. So we have something like redeem, the word for redeem. It's a major theme in the book of Ruth, and it's used a significant number of times in the individual sections and in the book as a whole. Uh, but you take a word like Joseph in the book of Genesis, and you count the number of times that it's used. We see in the book of Genesis, it is used 156 times. Now, the significance of this, and this is one of the, uh, I think, one of the most obvious examples of the use of gematria in the script. The significance of this is that the gematria of the word Joseph is 156. So the gematria of the very word that is used determines how many times Joseph is mentioned in the book. And there are many examples of this kind of stuff happening throughout the scripture. It's a great way of showing how silly source criticism is, the idea that scripture is kind of a haphazard uh, uh, thrown together collection of what were originally totally distinct sources. Now, it's clear that the scriptures were written very precisely and with the whole in mind when each of the parts is composed. The Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke uh, is used when referring to the person of the Holy Spirit. So there are other examples of Holy Spirit being used, but when it refers to the person of the Holy Spirit, it's used 17 times. Well, that's the reduced value of the Tetragrammaton, and in fact, it's one of the most common uh, significant numbers used in the scripture. So uh, saying it's the reduced value is not just a way of getting around the fact that there's no significance. No, 17 has a pre-existing usage in the history of the Bible. See, 17 times in the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, which is written as a sequel to Luke, has many links to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Holy Spirit is used 59 times when referring to the person of the Holy Spirit. We know in these two texts that the Holy Spirit is a central theme. Okay, you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. You have Jesus saying, I came to cast fire on the earth of wood that it were already kindled in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, there's really no dispute that this is a very significant theme. There's no dispute that in the Gospel, or very little dispute, at least in the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the means by which the promise of God's dwelling with his people in person is fulfilled. The divinity of the Holy Spirit is an essential precondition for this uh, for this event to be significant in that way.
God pours out his Holy Spirit. It's an expression and a communication of his own divine life to the children of Israel and to the nations. He pours that out on the day of Pentecost. What's the significance of 59 here? Well, 59 is linked to the number 17 in the fact that it is the 17th prime number. And so 17 and 59 are all, all are uh, consistently used together. This is not the only example of 17 and 59 being used together, by the way. Uh, the book of Samuel, now this is a very interesting one. Uh, the book of Samuel is very long. It is one book. It's counted traditionally as one book in the 22-book Hebrew canon. Sometimes the 22-book Hebrew canon is counted as the 24-book canon because Judges is sometimes paired with Ruth and uh, Lamentations is sometimes paired with Jeremiah. Um, but in the Hebrew canon, the book of Samuel is counted as one book. However, since it's such a long book, it is composed of two scrolls. Now, one of the questions that I had is, is the scroll division authentic to the original product itself because presumably it would have been equally long when it was written and it would have required two scrolls then but is the point at which the scroll was divided a matter of divine inspiration and if it is we can actually find significance in seeing first Samuel as a literary unit and second Samuel as a literary unit which together constitute one book kind of like we have um, you know individual literary structures in a portion of the text, even though it's not in itself a whole book. Well, I think this helps show that uh, the division of the text is original to the original product. You have 22,066 words total. Uh, and the interesting thing is that this is divided equally between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. They have exactly the same number of words and they have exactly the same number of letters, at least when I looked it up and wrote it down. So if I'm wrong in that, you can look it up, you can comment, and I'll make a correction there. Um, but they had exactly the same number of words and exactly the same number of letters. And that's not an easy thing to do unintentionally because different words have different lengths, obviously. So if you want to have the same number of words and the same number of letters, you have to keep your eye out for every little jot and tittle. That's why Jesus says every jot and tittle is fulfilled in him. Anyway, collectively, they have 22,066 words divided into equal sets of 11,033 words, and this is the product of 17 times 59, which, as we just mentioned, 17 is the reduced gematria of uh, the tetragrammaton, and 59 is the 17th prime number. But this isn't just something which is significant in and of itself, you know, as if it has no connection to the themes of the book. No, the central theme of the book of Samuel is God making himself a house in and through the house of David. David says to God in the Davidic covenant, I want to make you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house and your son will build me a house, which becomes the temple. But in 2 Samuel 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion. This is the only sanctuary which is ever on Zion itself, in contrast to Moriah. These are not the same mountain, if you buy Peter Lightheart's argument in A House for My Name. And the Davidic Tabernacle, or the Booth of David, as Amos will refer to it, is its own sanctuary with its own kind of covenantal order. And there's all sorts of cool and unique things about it. But God's name... His presence, his self-revelation, comes to dwell in the tabernacle or the tent of David. And David's son builds God 
a temple where his name comes to dwell and where he reveals himself to Israel and the nations. The end of the book of Samuel is David's buying the very plot of land where the temple is going to be constructed. And so the Tetragrammaton is the name of God. And so we have two numbers which are related to each other mathematically through prime numbers and which refer in their symbolic quality to uh, the Tetragrammaton, that name which is revealed in the accumulated uh, content of the covenants. We also have a layer of Christological significance here. When David says, I will build you a house, God says, no, I will build you a house. And God is depending here on the analogy between human families and an, uh, a work of architecture. So uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, when God takes Eve and he creates Eve, the word for his creation of Eve is actually built. It's an architectural term. The next time it's used is when Cain builds his city. And the idea is that there is a correspondence between the bride of Adam, who will become the bride of God, and a city. So we call the Virgin Mary the city of God. That's why in Revelation chapter 12, you've got the Virgin Mary with a crown of 12 stars. Well, Guess what? You've got 12 jewels in the city of God in Revelation 21. It's another reason why Mary and the church correspond to each other and, uh, and illumine each other, conceptually speaking. So the house in which God places his presence, in which he places his name, is the seed of David. Obvious connection to the incarnation here, because it is in the seed of David, according to the flesh, Jesus the Messiah, where all the fullness of God dwells bodily, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Well, Christ, Jesus Christ, this comes from the Hebrew work Mashiach, anointed. Well, guess what? That word is used 17 times in the whole book of Samuel. So it's very interesting the ways in which these things layer on top of each other and not only constitute individual threads by which um, the text makes its meaning plain, but the different senses of a biblical text are related to each other in specific and fascinating ways. Oh, this is a cool one. I mean, this is this stunned me. And as far as I know, I mean, uh, I'm sure someone else has noticed this, but when I was looking through texts and using Gematria calculators to figure out the Gematria, I, I found this. I was blown away. Uh, Joseph died being 110 years old. Uh, they embalmed him. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. I should have um, divided the quotation, but from the other part of the text, but it should be pretty obvious. So if you look at the Gematria of Genesis 1, and that, I mean, Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 2, 3, which is the creation week. If you take the sum of the gematria, every letter, every word used here, it is 110,601, or 110,000 plus 601. Okay, so multiples to values of 10 is something which was well known throughout the ancient world. Okay, this is not just an artifact of the way that we write Arabic numerals. Um, 601, at first glance, it seems like, well, that's not actually that close to 110,000 until you realize 601 is the 110th prime. So we have 110 times 1,000 plus the 110th prime. And that's the first section of the book of Genesis. And guess what? The very last passage of the book of Genesis is a note that Joseph dies at 110 years old. So what's the significance of this besides being some, something which is just cool? 
Joseph is a sign of the messianic seed of Abraham. So there is a literary strategy that runs through the Torah whereby the seed of Abraham is considered both a particular figure and the nation corporately. So when Paul says that seed was the Messiah, it's not just something Paul was inventing off the top of his head. The literary scenes of the Pentateuch, the four major poems of the Pentateuch, if you look at the way that they refer to each other and to the primeval history, you see that the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, is both an individual figure and the nation as a whole. So we have got totus Christus, the whole Christ, head and body. That figure is identified as the seed who is descended from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49, 8-12. And the language used of that figure in Genesis 49-12 will be used throughout the prophets and connected to the root of Jesse and the offspring of David. So we have a complex tapestry of inter and intertextuality, whereby the seed is identified as the seed of the woman, as an individual figure, as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and as the offspring of David. Now, Joseph is identified in this very text as a sign and a foretaste of that messianic figure. How? Well, you look at the language that is used of uh, the seed of Judah in uh, Genesis 49, 8-12. Specifically the phrase, your father's sons will bow down to you. And you realize that it is a echo or a quotation of the vision or dream that Joseph had in Genesis 37. So if you remember, in Genesis 37, Joseph has two dreams which run in parallel, and the two dreams have uh, 11 of 12 stars uh, bowing down to one, and by star, it's referring to the constellation. You don't have individual points of light bowing down. Constellations are used throughout scripture. I mean, Scripture explicitly refers to the Pleiades, by the way, so this is not just conjecture on my part. Um, it's one of the significant, uh, significant aspects of the number 12 and the idea of 12 tribes. Uh, so you have 11 of 12 constellations bowing down to Joseph, and then you have 11 of 12 ears of grain bowing down to Joseph. And Joseph has this narrative which illustrates the way in which the Messiah will accomplish and enact his work, subject for another video. Um, so we have that connection here between Genesis 37 and Genesis 49. So the individual seed of Abraham is the seed of Judah, is the Messiah, is anticipated by Joseph. And this explains why 110 is such a significant number, symbolically speaking. The seed of Abraham is said to be like the dust of the earth and like the stars of heaven. Now, dust generally refers to the number of children. Stars of heaven, in general, refers to the exaltation of these children to partake in heavenly glory. Daniel chapter 12 says that the wise will shine like the stars of heaven above. But notice, this is heaven and earth. A microcosm is a miniature copy a miniature imprint of the heavens and the earth. When God creates Adam, what was the text introduced by? These are the generations, or the offspring of, of the heavens and the earth, which obviously matches the beginning of the Bible, which is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 49, 
where we find this messianic prophecy is introduced by in the latter days or in the end of days. The Hebrew word for latter or end here bears exactly the same relationship to the Hebrew word for beginning used in Genesis 1 that our English word for beginning and end bear to each other. They are related to each other linguistically. They're always paired together, consistently paired together. So we have protological history, the creation of the world, eschatological history, the recreation of the world through the Messiah, because the Messiah is a miniature copy of the heavens and the earth. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 1? Uh, he unites all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so Joseph has two dreams which run in parallel, one of which concerns the heavens, it's the stars, the other which of which concerns the earth, which is about plants, ears of grain, things produced from the land, heaven and earth, the dust of the earth, the stars of heaven. And that is why the numerical value of the entire text of the creation week, 110,000 plus 601, which is the 110th prime, is then echoed or summed up in miniature in the lifespan of Joseph, who dies at 110 years old. And oh, by the way, there's one other figure who dies at 110 years old, and his name is Joshua. Well, the name Joshua is the name Jesus. Uh, Joshua and Joseph have all sorts of links which uh, uh, bind them together and, and help us to interpret both figures in light of each other and see both of them as a foretaste of Jesus Christ. So, of course, there's more to say, um, but uh, I want to close off the video here. Uh, actually, all things considered, I think 44 minutes is pretty good for the subject that we've talked about. Eventually, I hope to produce an entire series on symbolic numbers in the, in the Bible, but in future installments of Bible Bits, we'll be talking about just individual passages which have interesting numbers used in them, and those will be much, much shorter. Uh, but I wanted to produce one at the kind of meta level, explaining what exactly I'm doing before I produce any of those. Uh, so thank you so much for watching. Uh, uh, remember to consider becoming a premium subscriber through Patreon. Uh, remember to like, subscribe, and turn on that little bell so that you get notified when I have a new video. Uh, and if you enjoyed this video, uh, consider sharing it uh, with others uh, whom you think might be interested. Uh, thank you so much, and I will see you, God willing, tomorrow.